Tonight we're turning in Ezra chapter 4 to read the Word of God. I'll begin reading at verse 1, and we'll read the entire chapter, which is 24 verses. Please turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel in the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Imidrathdath, and Abiel, and the rest of their associates, they wrote to Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshi, the scribe, wrote a letter against, uh, against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshi, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king." In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That is why this city was laid waste. We have made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, then you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king said in answer, to Rehem, the commander, and Shimshi, the uh, scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and the search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, 
and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehem and Shimshi, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is God's word. You may or may not know that until recently, part of my responsibility at Presbytery was on the church visitation committee. It sounds like the kind of committee that simply goes to a place and asks, how are things going? You should know it's also the committee that is contacted when things do not go well in a church. And I resigned from that committee based on the advice of my session, who said, I really need to spend more time with my family, which is true. But before I left that committee, I want to review for you just a little bit about what I've experienced over the last two years. In the last two years in our presbytery and in churches that I'm associated with, there have been a lot of trouble in churches. Let me review just a few. Conflict over how to handle COVID, and the pastor left. More conflict over how to handle COVID, the congregation split and half of them left. An elder critical of a pastor's preaching, the pastor left. Two sessions at odds about how to handle something that that happened 15 years ago, they're still at odds. An elder critical of how hard a pastor was working, the pastor left. The pastor neglecting his wife and his children, trying to keep it all together, the wife left. One pastor, then another pastor, then a third pastor, then a fourth pastor, also discouraged they would love to leave. Only as Christianity reported, Christianity Today reported in the last month, they're afraid to leave because they don't know what job they would do if they're not a pastor, so they don't leave. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you were to go back in our presbytery to about 1960, you would discover that in the state of Michigan and Ontario, there was one single OPC church. That's it. And over the 60 or so years since then, nearly 70 some now, over that time, we have grown as a presbytery at the rate of about one church every other year. So in spite of what may appear to be conflict that is overwhelming, and at times it has felt that way, Still, our presbytery over the last number of years continues to grow, and even in places, I would say, flourish. We continue as a presbytery to have a strong interest in planting more churches. Just let me commend the presbytery and our church specifically for the support of the recent church planter assessment time and the interest in particular church plants in our community and in our presbytery. There are many, many, many good things happening in many churches. So how do you square these two realities? On the one hand, all of this struggle. On the other hand, successes at times. The only way to square that reality, whether it's in the church or it's in your family, 
or even if it's in your own heart, struggle and success both, is to know the truth of Ezra chapter 4. And that truth is this, nothing attempted for God will go unopposed. You need to know that. You need to know that again for your own heart. You need to know that for your family. You need to know that for this church. You need to know that for the church of Jesus Christ in general. That's the truth of Ezra chapter 4, and that is the truth that applies today. I want to show you how that's true from this passage. There are just two things I want to tell you tonight. The first is the two forms of opposition that Ezra and the others with him suffered in the record of Ezra chapter 4, and then the second is the hope that is attached at the end of this chapter. Most of the time is spent on these two forms of opposition. They won't make any sense to you unless I explain the following. You just have to remember where the book of Ezra is. Ezra would not be a book in the Bible if it not for the fact the Israelites had rebelled against God more than 70 years before this book was written, and they were captured and taken away into captivity. And it was after 70 years in captivity that King Cyrus, noted in this chapter, sent some of the Israelites back into the territory of Israel to rebuild the city and especially to rebuild the temple. They were not a big group. They were not a powerful group. They were a small group sent back to do a great thing, and that is reestablish the worship of God. In this last chapter, before the one we just read, the people of Israel had laid the foundation of the temple. And if you were here to listen to that sermon, you would have realized, as it said, that half the people or so, at least some of the people, were thrilled. They had made this long journey back, and now the temple foundation, the reestablishment of worship in this place, was there. It was tangible. Look, the, the foundation is laid. But other people, the older people, remembered the temple that had been destroyed 70 years before, Solomon's temple. And they openly wept, chapter 3 said, so that the sound of celebration and the sound of weeping was so mixed, no one could tell if it was a happy time or a sad time. There was joy. But even in that joy, in reflection on what had been, there was the need to look forward to something that was still beyond their reach. That's Ezra chapter 3. But what we find in chapter 4 is that there is one other big problem with the desire to return to worship. Evil does not want it to happen. Let me put it bluntly. Anything that is attempted for God is opposed. That is today's passage. And the passage shows us that that opposition comes in two forms. Listen to this, and if you are one of those children who loves to take notes and then put check marks beside how often I say something, here's a big word I'm going to explain for you. It is the word syncretism. Syncretism is a word that describes the desire to bring together some things that naturally do not belong together into one to try to make them compatible. The two things that are opposed to each other that are attempted to be brought together in this passage is the worship of God and then the worship of other things. That's what we read about in the first six verses. At the beginning of this chapter, we read about people who are described as adversaries. They were people who had been relocated when the Israelites left this nation. 
and those who had been relocated from other places in the world into the nation of Israel, the territory of Israel, by the king of Assyria, say to the Israelites who now return, we've been worshiping the God that you have come back to worship, to reestablish the temple. We've been worshiping that God all along. If you want to find out how they had come there and what sort of people they were and what worship they offered to God, you can go back to 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 25 and following, and this is what you discover. We read that they tried to combine the worship of God with the worship of their own gods. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 37 says, God speaking to those who had been replanted there by the king of Assyria. You shall not fear other gods. You shall fear the Lord your God alone. You cannot have both, Second King says. You have God in his worship, or you have something else, and you worship that thing. You cannot have them both at the same time. And now those who were already here, those who had been brought there by the king of Assyria, way back when, they come to the, the, to the Israelites who are returning now, these resettlers, and they tell them, you can be syncretists. You can have these two things together. Let us build with you, for we worship your God just like you do. What's the big deal here? Only what they said to these resettlers was not true. And we read the reason that it was not true in the words of Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the leaders of the family tribes. They say to these people who want to syncretize, bring these two things together, no way, we'll have nothing to do with you. To worship something beside God is not to worship God alone. Just listen to this a minute. It is an amazing decision they make. You have to remember, this was not a great group of people. It was relatively small. They were not powerful. They did not have an army. They didn't even have a city with walls. They had no natural protection. It would have made sense if you were advising them in the moment and you were only worried about their success as a people to say to them, for your own safety or even for the rebuilding of the city, it is better to take the help that is offered to you. Just rebuild the temple much quicker. And once the temple is rebuilt, you can say to these syncretists, on second thought, we don't want any part with you. Thank you for your help. Now we're going to worship God in the way that he is commanded. But here's the thing about the worship of God, and I want you to hear this tonight. The worship of God, the leaders of these resettlers say, is far more important because it is a reflection of the person of God. I want to use an analogy. I don't mean it to be crass. And if it strikes you that way, I apologize in advance. To be a syncretist would be like a husband saying to his wife, I really love you. You're very important to me, but I've got another woman on the side. Does it really matter? No wife would say to her husband in that circumstance, yeah, that's fine, it's not a big deal, it's good, it's all good. No, any wife who loves her husband and a husband who loves his wife would say the nature of who you are, the bond between us, to honor you as a wife means 
I can only have you as my wife to add something to you, degrades you, and devalues you. It is not right. If I can even say it a little bit further, the worship that the people of God intend to offer to God makes a gigantic series of claims. There's only one creator. There is only one sustainer of the universe. There is only one redeemer. There is only one king. The ancient Christians were put to death because they said to the Caesar, we worship Jesus alone. He is king. There is no other. There is only one who's coming back. That's Jesus. He alone is Lord. These these Israelites, even though they came many, many years before the ancient Christians who were killed because they confessed Jesus Christ alone, their hearts beat in the same rhythm as Christians then, as Christians today, who would much rather go to prison, they would even die than to say Jesus Christ plus. To be a syncretist is to offend the God who is. Let me challenge you, as one who lives in a Western culture where direct opposition is not as clearly seen as the syncretism, that is very clearly, very clearly seen and is very tempting. Whatever it is that rivals King Jesus is an affront to our God. If you put your hope in politics or a particular politician, and if your choice does not make it, it feels as though everything is lost. If you put your hope in your position, your financial position, or your position at work, and if that were to be absent, you would feel like all is lost. If you put your security in your comfort, that is, I will build my life in such a way that nothing can harm me, whatever it is, if you add that something to Jesus as a place in which you find your security and hope, in order for your life to be okay, you're falling into the danger of syncretism. How do we know if we are combining the worship of God with other things? Let me ask you a few questions. What do you spend your time, your energy, your imagination, your hopes pursuing? And if the Scriptures addressed to you call you to abandon something you hold dear, does it bother you? And do you say to yourself, that's not really necessary. I can have Jesus plus all this. I would say, sort of modifying C.S. Lewis, that the danger that faces us most often is not overt oppression of the gospel in our culture. It is a syncretism that is far more dangerous. It is a subtle temptation. It is to try to make our allegiance to God compatible with other desires, Let me ask you again, what would really make you happy in life? What does your heart long for? If it is something alongside of, something that rivals Jesus Christ, then I would tell you that you ought to be careful of the temptation to be a syncretist. 
The worship of Jesus Christ is to Him and Him alone. Anything that is attempted in the worship of God will not stand unopposed. That's the first temptation, syncretism. But there's a second temptation in these verses as well, a second way in which the worship of God and God alone is opposed. And that's what most of our passage is about in verses 7 through 23. Here it is not a syncretism at all. It is direct opposition. It is oppression. In verses 7 through 23, you must understand that the author takes a giant leap forward. You will see that there's different names of different kings in these verses. And you might think, how did that happen? Well, let me tell you, if you wonder, how did that happen? You are asking the right question. Because the events that take place in verses 7 through 24 require us to leap forward a significant amount of time to what is recorded again in Ezra chapter 7 and Nehemiah chapter 1. In other words, this particular event of those local to the Israelites opposing the rebuilding of the temple causes the author to think of something that will happen much further in advance historically than what is found in the first six verses of this chapter. You might think that's very hard for me to understand. Why in the world would the author do that? Take a concrete situation then add to it something that lay further in the future. Why would he combine those two? Let me explain. Those who wanted to work with the resettlers, those I just described are now going to turn into, in this example, in this selection of verses, verses 7 through 23, now become those who work directly against the Israelites. Now they write a letter to the king to tell him that these Israelites are troublemakers. And if the king allows them to rebuild the city and the temple, the Israelites will not pay tribute, custom toll, or royal revenue. What a brilliant tactic they take. Every king needs the coffers full. And so they say to the king, if this place is rebuilt, they're going to cut off your supply of money. They describe the Israelites as rebellious, hurtful, and those who would stir up sedition, according to verse 15. And then they tell the king, if you don't believe us, go ahead and look through your history book and see what is revealed there. And what we read is, that's exactly what the king does. We can guess, however, he does not make a very thorough search. Later on in the book of Ezra, it turns out his search was not thorough at all. But he writes back to those who oppose the Israelites and tells them that they have every right to tell the Israelites to stop and to use force if they need to so that the city and the temple specifically would not be rebuilt. There's no hiding their opposition in this case. There's no more friendly hands extended here in cooperation. This is direct opposition and oppression. Now again, the question I raised to you a bit ago, I raised to you again. If the events in verses 7 through 23 happen a significant amount of time in the future, why does the author of Ezra include this story here? Why not wait until the time is right in the sequence of the history to mention this direct opposition? Here is the answer. 
It is everything to do with setting expectations. The author wants the reader of this book to understand that opposition to the establishment of the worship of God alone is not, hear this, is not some kind of abnormality. Opposition to seeking to please God is not some kind of weird thing that only happens occasionally. It is not some grand surprise. It just doesn't pop up here or there. It is natural and to be expected. Or to put it this way, it is the nature of belonging to a world in which sin is present and Christ's kingdom has been established. The way in which we think about this historically and systematically is to say there is an antithesis in this world that goes back as far as Genesis chapter 3. As soon as Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God said, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent. There will be perpetually opposition between the two. Now, if that seems harsh to us, consider the alternative. If God had not determined that... Evil would reign and there would be no good. And so God in his kindness to humanity establishes opposition to evil, an opposition that not only existed in Genesis and in 2 Kings 17 and in Ezra and Nehemiah, but continues into the lifetime of Jesus Christ where he is opposed not only by religious leaders, but the forces of evil strive to thwart the work of Jesus Christ. And that work continues today. So that Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, not only apply to those who read them originally in Ephesus, they apply to us as well. There we read, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As much as you look around you today, you you drive here and you see trees and birds and other people and cars and, and homes, and you think this is reality. Paul says, lift up your eyes, my friend, because beyond the reality of what you see, which is real... There is a spiritual reality as well in which there is a great cosmic battle being waged. It is between the force of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the force of the kingdom of evil. And in order to live as a Christian in this world, you must be able to embrace the reality of this conflict. Whether it is in your own heart and your battle with syncretism, or whether it is a battle in the world as a whole with direct opposition, this chapter is meant to establish for us the reality of that truth, that nothing that is attempted for God will be unopposed in this world. I don't know how that strikes you. Maybe you go about your work every day, showing up, doing your thing, Watching the news, nobody watches the news anymore, what am I saying? Checking the news on realclearpolitics.com, wherever you find your news. Being encouraged or often discouraged. Watching your marriage sometimes thrive and other times go through rocky times. Watching your children grow up and asking yourself the question, are they walking with the Lord or they're not? 
watching perhaps families fall apart, watching your community suffer, seeing injustice in this world, maybe belonging to a church as I began with tonight where there's many good things and yet real struggles that occur, and you ask yourself the question, what is going on in this world? Here's the answer. There is a great cosmic battle going on that we see bits and pieces of. We see good and the force of good being waged by King Jesus, and yet we see evil and all of its power also in existence in our world. And if there's nothing else I want to set before you tonight, it is this. I shouldn't say nothing else. It's at least this, the reality of that world. Because otherwise you might live as many people live, perhaps you live, Simply thinking to yourself, if I merely make the right choices, if I tweak my life, if I'm smarter, if I'm more careful, if I apply more money, if I do the right things, life will automatically be better. The truth is, there's nothing you are able to do in order to reverse the evil that exists in our world. I'm not saying you don't fight against evil in your own life, in your family, in your community, in your world. I'm simply saying the battle is beyond human. It is supernatural. It requires more than who you are, even if it involves you. And again, I say to you, one of the great burdens of the sermon is simply for you to know that truth, so that you are not discouraged through the ups and the downs, You don't look at one pastor if another dropping like flies and say, all is lost. You say to yourself, but Jesus is also at work. There's more here than simply the evil. And it is with that, I want to encourage you with future hope. Because the last verse, verse 24, tells us that there is more that is coming. If you read verse 24, it says, Then the work in the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until when? Until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. This jumping forward into time is not only to give us a reality check, it is also to encourage us to know that the stopping to the establishment of worship in Jerusalem, that stoppage would not continue forever. Instead, there would be a time in which the temple would be rebuilt and that worship would begin again. Really what I want you to know tonight is that this opposition will not last. The opposition to Jesus and His kingdom cannot last. Whether that opposition is a syncretistic struggle in your heart or the direct oppression that you may experience is certainly is being experienced by Christians across the world today, that will come to an end. You may believe that you have an easy life. Let me tell you tonight, that's not what God has called you to. You may believe that you are, if you are nice enough, everything will go well with you. It's not true. You may believe that if you make friends, everyone will be friendly to you. It is not true. That is not to say you are not called to work hard, to be nice, to make friends. You're called to do all of that. It is merely to say, have a realistic approach to what you are capable of doing. And the great flow of redemptive history that starts with the creation of all things perfectly 
tells us a fall came that corrupted this perfect world that God had made. That points us to the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ, not only of our souls, our spirits, but eventually all of creation that will occur in the consummation, in the creation, fall, redemption, consummation way of reading the Bible. The effects of the fall are real. They're felt. Nothing that is proposed or attempted for God will stand unopposed. But that way of reading the Bible also leads us to this conclusion that evil will end. And Jesus will overcome. Nothing attempted for God will go unopposed. That's check for you tonight. I don't know how many of you are hockey players, but if you've ever watched someone fly down the ice and offer an amazing hip check, it looks incredible and painful at the same time. This sermon might do the same thing for you. A hip check of reality. This cosmic struggle is true in the church. It is true in your marriage. When you are raising your children, in your struggle with lust and covetousness, it is true. All I'm saying to you tonight from Ezra chapter 4 is do not leave it there. If nothing attempted for God will be unopposed, then nothing Jesus does will ultimately fail. He cannot fail. That is the gospel truth. Let's bow in prayer. Father, sometimes we need to step back and simply see the world as you see it. To look at your word and to see that through the, through the ups and downs, the easy and the hard times, this world is not all there is, at least what we observe of this world. There is this great cosmic struggle going on in our hearts and beyond our hearts and our communities and the world as a whole. And we join our voices with the saints in the last chapter of Revelation. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Because we desire not simply for the opposition and the struggle that exists in our hearts and our world to be taken away. We do long for that. But we long for it because then Jesus will be most fully recognized as King. So please, Lord, may that be true soon, that we would see Him face to face. But until then, give us the courage and the hope to look at every day and the opposition that comes from the forces of evil, not as something that cannot be opposed, but rather give us the grace to see that Jesus is greater. His kingdom cannot fail, and He will continue to rule, and we'll see that rule until the time when He returns and all things will be made right. Father, we long for that day. Give us patience while we wait. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.